Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Goins from the Reimagined Schools podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Andrea Ferlin, MD, PhD. She's the author of a book called Eight Steps to Conquer Chronic Pain, A Doctor's Guide to Lifelong Relief. She studies and writes about addressing chronic pain. Oh, you're going to learn so much today. What a powerful book. What a powerful conversation. It's going to help you, your friends, your colleagues, your family members. Good stuff. Thanks for listening. And oh, by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review. Maybe, uh, you know, said something nice about the podcast or, uh, you know, I don't know, gave me five stars. Hmm, what do you think? That'd be so cool. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Dr. Andrea Furlan, MD, PhD, is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and a staff physician and senior scientist at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Her YouTube page has more than 487,000 subscribers and more than 42 million views. Her research focuses on treatments of chronic pain, including medications, complementary and alternative therapies, and rehabilitation. Today, we're focused on Dr. Furlan's book, Eight Steps to Conquer Chronic Pain, A Doctor's Guide to Lifelong Relief. Dr. Furlan, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hey, hello, Steve. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you and your audience today. Well, great to have you here, and uh, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, there's, I think just about everybody has some sort of pain that they deal with, and uh, this is a, an amazing uh, uh, sort of book that you've created that helps uh, people address or at least start paying attention to maybe doing the things they need to do in order to uh, create some relief. So, very cool. So, let's start with asking you this: What made you decide? that you wanted to focus on why people feel pain and what to do about it. I mean, what, what made you go, I, I want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, treating people with pain is, uh, it's a passion of mine since I was in medical school. First of all, when I decided to become a physician, it was because uh, I had suffered uh, pain during my teenage years. I had a uh, very debilitating monthly menstrual cramps that every month I had to lose, you know, one or two or three days of activities that I enjoyed, going to school, going to social gatherings, and it was so annoying. And then I decided to become a doctor. And then when I was in medical school and I had to decide which specialty to choose, I chose physical medicine rehabilitation. It's the short form is physiatry because physiatry is the physician of the person with a physical disability. And I call pain and chronic pain is an invisible disability. And I wanna help people to receive rehabilitation for chronic pain. Awesome, very cool. And I, you know, there's so many different ways it appears and it's interesting. I mean, uh, your uh, um, website really lays it out there too. It's just the imagery that's there. Um, and 
you know, your book is titled Eight Steps to Conquer Chronic Pain, A Doctor's Guide to Lifelong Relief. So let's start by talking about what chronic pain is and isn't. So could you go there? Yeah. Yeah, So before I explain the eight steps in the book, I have a chapter that I explain what is pain. A lot of people feel pain. Almost 100% of the world population feels pain. There is a very, very rare genetic disorder that the person is born with the inability to feel pain. And they die at early age because they get injured, damaged, or diseases, and they don't feel. So pain is actually protective because it uh, helps us to detect danger, right? And uh, so 100% of the population will feel pain and 20% will develop chronic pain. Chronic pain is defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain has ongoing continuous pain that lasts at least three months. So imagine having a pain that is ongoing, constant, day in, day night, 24 hours, and at least three months, this is chronic pain. Now, What is chronic pain? What's going on? Why the pain becomes constant? I like to compare the pain system in our body to the alarm system that we have in our houses, because it's the same thing. We we are born with this pain system to detect danger. So when you install an alarm system in your house, you detect, you you install those sensors, you know, for smoke detectors, uh, fire, a burglar, a breaking, a flood in the basement, right? And uh, you wanted to make noise when something is wrong. Now, if, if the system is functioning okay, it will be silent when there is no danger and will make noise when there is an intruder or a fire. Imagine now that this alarm system of the house is malfunctioning and it's going on all the time and it's making noise, and there is no fire, no burglar, nothing broken. And not only that, but the volume of the noise, the siren is extremely loud. That's what chronic pain is. The pain system is malfunctioning. So all all chronic pains, they start with an acute pain. And acute pain means there was something broken, injured, disease, or damage. And that initial pain is healed. Now that problem is gone. It's your body heals because our bodies are amazing. They heal, but scars don't hurt. But that acute pain caused a sensitization in the pain system. And now the pain system is going on and the person feels pain. It's a real pain. They're not imagining it's a real pain. And, um, that's what chronic pain is. We need to fix the pain system. Gotcha. I appreciate you explaining that. You know, it's it, it's interesting because uh, it, just a note: you, you, if you go to the doctor, you know, to, to do a checkup or whatever, usually at some point, you know, they're asking you if something, how you're feeling. You know, point to the smiley face or the frowny face. You know, which which level of uh, pain yeah. are you feeling? And uh, you know, it's I know that uh, I've had. Uh, a relative and a friend who have had that type of pain that is, you know, it drives them insane where it's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's constant. I, you know, it's funny, a, um, a bunch of years ago, it's a long story, but I fell mm-hmm. off a ladder and I was standing on the 
the height, you know, where there's a little sticker that says, don't stand here. <laughs> but I was standing on that and I fell and, uh, um, I'd never broken anything and I didn't that day either, but it was really painful and it was just, it, uh, it led to something and, uh, they had to repair my, the, my lower leg and, and, uh, um, it was funny because the doctor told me, he said, you know, your leg's always going to remember that we had to work on it down there. And so at weird times you'll have things pop up, um, where suddenly it says, It'll, it'll feel like a bug's crawling on it or it'll suddenly go, you know, bang, you know, hey, I don't feel good. And he said, it's just because it remembers things. And yeah, um, yeah. every single pain that uh, you had in your life, even the ones that uh, you felt when you were a kid, they are a little memory in your brain. They're there somewhere. And uh, this is what we see sometimes in people in later life, if they have a very stressful event in their life, a traumatic event and psychological trauma, a fear. It's almost like those memories of pain are now becoming in their conscious mind. So they kind of feel them again. And um, we know this because babies that are born premature, they suffer a lot of painful events in the neonatal intensive care unit. Like they go, they stay many weeks in the intensive care unit to survive, right? Because they are premature and they are poked, a lot of, uh, you know, blood tests and surgeries and uh, sometimes a lot of uh, painful things that happen to them in, while they are in the neonatal intensive care unit. Those people, when they become adults, they're much more prone to have chronic pain. So we know that uh, if a person is exposed to a lot of acute injury, especially when their nerve system is forming, all of those connections are being made, later in life, they're more prone because now the, the pain system, imagine it's, it's like this alarm system of their house is more sensitized. And they are more, uh, we know this, uh, there are a lot of research showing that they have more chronic pain. Gotcha. That's, you know, it's just, uh, just interesting how, uh, um, you know, f from time to time we have different experiences with it. I mean, it's whether yeah. it's, uh, you, uh, actually, um, it's, it's some sort of trauma that you experienced or some, some sort of physical thing yeah. happened yeah. or, uh, something to repair something also creates yeah. its own thing. Uh, what is, is, is there some sort of, you know, uh, what are like some of the recent insights from research on pain. I mean, what, what are they talking about when it comes to this now? What's, what's some of the direction that people go and yeah, doing this? Uh, it's fascinating that, um, this thing about the pain system, Steve, that I just mentioned to you, that we have this pain system in our body is a new discovery in medicine compared to the other systems. Probably, you know, I know my kids when they were in grade six, I think grade five or grade six, they had to do a project in biology classes and the teacher told them, you have to choose a system of the body and present in group. So my, they had a list of systems, the digestive system, respiratory system, cardiovascular system, immune system, reproductive system. <laughs> and, um, and so these systems in our body have been discovered 200, 300 years ago. So there's a lot of years to do research on them and discover the diseases. Now, when I saw the list of systems that my kids brought to home, and of course they asked me to help, I said, where is the pain system? <laughs> 
Why the pain system is not included in this list? Because the pain system is going, everybody in the world needs to know about the pain system. And there was not, because the pain system is a new discovery. It was the first time that someone kind of uh, started wondering that we have a pain system, this alarm system in our body, and this pain system can break or malfunction, was in 1965. Actually, it was here in Canada, in Montreal, at McGill University, that they described the gate control theory, which is one of the mechanisms that can uh, explain the pain system in our body. And then people started... um, investigating, doing research. So we are talking about, you know, um, 50, 60 60 years of research. What is fascinating is that in the last 20, 30 years, all of this research has, not all, I would say most of the research has been focused on the brain because we did not have good imaging studies of the brain before that. There was no way when you do an MRI of the brain, you only see a picture of a static picture, but you don't see what's working, uh, what is where things are turned on and off. But now with functional MRI, scientists can see what is turned on and off in the brain when you are thinking about something, when you are doing something. So they can investigate brains of people with acute pain, chronic pain, different kinds of pain, treatments for pain. And it's fascinating because the brain is the central of this alarm system and it does a lot and it does, it's able to suppress completely pain, but it's also able to generate pain. So I could talk about this for hours here because it's fascinating. This is the field where we are going in the future. That's interesting. You know, it's, there's so much so much there. And, and just as a note, I'm someone who most of my life, I didn't have any problems. And then suddenly in the last several, I've had uh, the opportunities to visit. Uh, like today, I'm going to go visit for a one-year checkup after I had to have, uh, I, I had some brain surgery, um, which uh, it, when what's fascinating is the, you know, yeah, you don't think about something until someone says to you, uh, you know, we're going to have to remove this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you're like, you know, because you only got one brain, you only got one yeah. that part of your head, and they start talking about doing stuff like that. And it's just it it's just interesting when you you talk about some of this stuff that you're talking about because I I have n- neither chronic or acute pain, but I have some things that happen occasionally as a result yeah. of things like uh, you know I bend over too much and uh, or something like that, like pulling weeds and stuff like this, and something happens, and and uh, the surgeon tells me it's all. What people say, he says, this is just normal. Mm-hmm. You're doing what's supposed to, and it's fascinating what you're talking about with the MRI and stuff like that too. So, what a what a cool thing, you know, because we've learned so much about, uh, you know, what, what happens yeah. upstairs, and I uh, and I, I I gotta kind of imagine that as you're trying to help people deal with pain, that yeah. uh, that's yeah. gotta Let be me, fascinating. Uh, one thing that is fascinating is. Um, the ability, I'll give an example, and uh, you probably know the story, that uh, people may have amputations, amputation, amputated a leg, a, a foot, a hand. Some people, uh, we, call, we consider amputation even when they remove a tooth, like a tooth extraction is an amputation because you remove a body part, a mastectomy, they remove one of the breasts or both breasts. 
that's considered an amputation. And it's not uncommon that the person will continue feeling sensations in the part that is amputated. We call those phantom limb sensations, not necessarily pain, but they continue feeling. They, they say, I, I still feel my foot and they look and there's no more foot. <laughs> and some of those people, well, fortunately that's rare, but some of those people who have amputation sensations, they have pain in the area that doesn't exist anymore. So that's a very clear example that your brain is generating that pain because there's nothing, there's no more right, foot right. there, right? Right. But they feel pain. And, and sometimes the, those patients, they don't even tell their doctors because they are afraid they're going to be considered crazy because they say, I, I'm not going to tell my doctor that I'm feeling this. I'm, I'm still feeling my foot because they will think I'm crazy. But that's a very real thing that happens. So that's one example why people can, you know, uh, the brain can still have that memory of pain. On the other hand, we also know that um, there are people that using the brain waves and the way they're thinking, they are able to suppress pain. And we see this examples are people who meditate, people who use uh, deep meditation, they are able to suppress pain. And uh, you probably, you know, heard of people that um, they, they, like some women, they are able to have a baby labor and they feel very little pain because they're able to concentrate and do self-hypnosis or meditation. There is also, even in people who don't know how to meditate, depending on the situation, they are able to not feel pain because the brain is focused on something else. I'll give you an example. There is a many reports in the medical literature showing that um, soldiers, when they are in war, they reported that they they were injured. They sometimes they lo they lost a a piece of their body. They they lost a toe or a finger, or they had a very severe injury, and they did not feel pain at all until the moment that they got to the camp and they were able to relax, and then they looked at their legs and they said, oh, no, I can't believe I have that amount of injury in my leg, and they didn't feel anything, just because their brain was focused on surviving and get out of here, that's not the time for you to... So how come that the brain sometimes fabricates pain and sometimes it eliminates pain completely? That is because pain, we need to understand what pain is. Again, pain is that signal of danger okay so if if the brain receives that information from the body and the brain assigns a meaning to that injury to that sensation a sensation is just a, an electrical impulse okay that arrives in the brain like vision vision is a sensation right Vision, hearing, they're all sensory sensations that arrive in our brain. So your brain right now is receiving uh, light and that light is reaching the brain. And it's a sensation that is interpreted as an image. But you heard about optical illusions that your eye is seeing something, but your brain tells you it's a different thing. Yes. That's optical illusion. It doesn't mean that your eye is 
broken, you need to see an ophthalmologist. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So it's just the brain is playing a trick. So pain is a sensation. The same thing that a vision is a sensation. Pain is an electrical impulse that originates in a part of your body, goes to the brain. The brain will interpret. Of course, when the brain interprets pain, it also activates areas of emotions in the brain, which doesn't happen too much with vision, for example. It does It does uh, a little bit because sometimes you see an image and you feel good or you feel bad, you feel sad or you feel happy. That's because you are assigning a meaning to that vision, to that image. But pain, when we feel this sensation called pain, your brain will always, always activate the emotional system and it will always be unpleasant. Unless if the person has a a disturbance of their psychological state, we call those masochists that they feel pain and they like it, they are happy, but that's an abnormality. In normal people, they feel pain and they are unhappy, they are disgusted, they are angry, they are frustrated, okay? So, because the brain will assign a meaning to that sensation, it will tell you what to do and what is the meaning. So, if you think that, okay, that injury, I have an injury in my leg, but I am in the middle of a war camp and I have to fight, I have to survive, your brain will say, okay, don't pay attention to the brain right to the pain right now. Just keep keep fighting until you get to the camp. Now, if your brain detects that this is a danger, this is something wrong, your brain will say, okay, this is pain. How much pain the person feels, too much pain, like in a scale that you mentioned from zero to 10, there is no, absolutely no correlation with the amount of injury. Some people will have a tiny injury and they will say it's eight, nine, 10. And some people will have a huge injury and they will say it's a one, two, three. I know this because they do these studies in laboratory with people, with volunteers who come to the laboratory. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are people who volunteer <laughs> to come to pain laboratories and uh, be nice. poked in the... So they do the same intensity of painful stimulus. And depending on what's happening around the person, just changing the color, they apply the same painful stimulus to people. And, but before they showed red colors and red colors are very dangerous. Our brain assigns, when you see red, your brain says, okay, what is the danger? Because it reminds you of blood, reminds you of fire reminds you of danger. So then they guess what they said, the scores were higher. Now, if they change the color to blue, they apply the same simulation. Those people gave numbers that were lower because blue reminds us of peace, sky, water, rivers, ocean, fish. And uh, so your brain says, okay, you're not in danger. Everything is blue here. Everything's fine. So they gave a lower number. It's, it's just fascinating because it's like, uh, I, you know, just <laughs> I've had two in pretty serious in, injuries that have had, have had surgery. And, you know, it's funny because the, the one that dealt with the leg, um, they had to just a note. I didn't know if I was going to wake up with a leg or not with a leg. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was a lot of fun. Just, I never forget waking up, but, wow. and during recovery of that, 
um, they, they had a morphine drip for me and, um, and I tried that and, oh my gosh, that's, I don't know how people get addicted to that stuff. Cause it's like, yeah, no, I had a nurse come in and say, well, you're not really using that. Are, are you feeling bad? And I said, I said, that stuff makes me feel worse. <laughs> I said, I, had, I can't do that. It, it suddenly would create a headache for me. Whereas what they did with the operation with the, with my head and the brain, it, there was, uh, I had nothing like that. I mean, they didn't, whatever they did, it was, I mean, I had pains associated with the recovery process and all that, but it was so much different. And, uh, and uh, it's just rather interesting what you're talking about. And it, it leads me to this, which is, you know, yeah. one of the things I've heard you talk about is that there's three types of pain. Can you kind of go into that for just a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, like a, not all pains are the same. When we say chronic pain or pain, of course, we're putting everything in the same bag, but for pain, I'm a pain specialist. So I, I could give you, you know, many different types of pain, but in, in general terms, we classify pain to three types. And these are the types of mechanisms. So I'm sorry about the names. I don't have better names for them, but uh, <laughs> the names are, <laughs> I have to speak a little bit of a medical lingo here. It's a uh, nociceptive, neuropathic, and nociplastic. Okay, so nociceptive pain is a pain that uh, is the, something is damaged and it's causing that pain, like an inflammation. So let's say you have a knee that uh, is inflamed. Uh, imagine someone with a gout attack. You know, gout is a very painful joint problem there is a lot of deposit of crystals inside of that joint so it inflames the joint becomes big red <laughs> very hot and very painful so you can see so gout attack is a classical example of a nociceptive pain there is something there that is uh, inflamed so this would be equivalent of there is a fire in the house <laughs> There is a, you know, one of the sensors is making noise. You go in that room, let's say you go in the kitchen and you see there is a fire in the kitchen. So what do you do? You put up the fire, you call the fireman, the fire truck comes and they put up the fire and the, the alarm goes off. So that's the nociceptive pain. There is some injury. There is a nail in your toe. <laughs> there is a, you know, there is a, you, you, you cut your toe or your finger. So that's not susceptible pain. And we treat this differently. We treat, we treat this like eliminating what is, so if there's a nail in your finger, you remove the nail, put a bandaid and, right. and that's fixed, right? If you have a gout attack, you give anti-inflammatories, remove the inflammation and that's gone. The second type of pain is neuropathic pain. So neuropathic pain means there are nerves that carry that information from your body to the brain and those nerves, that nerve system may be damaged. An example is multiple sclerosis, that they lose the myelin around the nerves, or a stroke, or a spinal cord injury, that the spine is cut, or a, uh, people who have diabetes and they have diabetic neuropathy, the nerves are damaged because of the sugar that is not under control or people who have uh, epizoster, which is a virus that attack the nerves and they may have posherpatic neuralgia. So those are examples of um, neuropathic pain. So there is a lesion, there is a problem, there is a disease, 
but it's in the nerves that carry the pain sensations. So then the pain would be a little bit different. The pain, the, the patient would describe the pain as burning, numbness, tingling, electrical shocks. It's different from the pain of an inflammation or a cut in the finger. Okay. Now, the third type of pain, nociplastic, it's that plasticity that happens in the pain system. That's when the, the first two pains have been healed. Let's say the person had a, a nerve damage, but the nerve has healed. And now they have an osteoplastic pain, which is that alarm system that became sensitized. It's like that memory of pain that is constant. And that is the, I'm not saying that the pain, they are imagining the pain. The pain is quite real. The pain is very annoying. It's constant, but it's a pain. It's a plasticity in the pain system. So we need to fix the pain system. Gotcha. Thanks for explaining that. It's, and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's interesting once you understand a little bit more about what those different types are like, because, you know, I, I'm pretty sure people can then understand a little bit more about what, uh, what it is, what they're feeling or why they're feeling it. And, uh, yeah. um, it really gives, uh, some thoughts to that. So, so earlier we talked about the difference between chronic and acute pain. Can you just kind of revisit that for just a minute so that we, as we step into, um, what I'm getting ready to get you to talk about is something that you talk about called the five M's with dealing with pain. So yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah. remind everybody what those, the difference is, and then let's, let's go there. Yeah. So acute pain is that pain can be nociceptive or neuropathic. And, um, that's a pain that there is an injury somewhere and it's less than three months. So we are talking about something that is time limited. So again, if you cut a finger, if there's a nail in your finger, that's acute pain. And that's not susceptive unless if that nail pierces a nerve. Now you have two, the nociceptive plus neuropathic. Nice, nice. A lot of pains, unfortunately, they are the three types. So we have people that have all three types mixed pain. And that makes our life more complicated because uh, when I talk about treatments of pain, some things that work for acute pain, they don't work for chronic pain. Things that work for neuropathic pain don't work for nociceptive pain. <laughs> and things that work for acute pain, they make nociplastic pain worse, like opioids. So when we talk about opioids, the complication of opioids is that they are wonderful. <laughs> they are amazing painkillers. They are godsend. Oh my, you know, it's we are so happy that opioids are in nature. Poppy plants, the poppy plants produce opioids. Morphine and codeine come from plants. And they have been used for millennials. And um, like people in thousands of years ago, they discovered that, uh, you know, eating the poppy plant, poppy seeds, they got pain relief. That's because they were ingesting codeine and morphine. So they are really amazing, but they work for acute pain. And acute pain is post-operative pain. I'm sorry that it didn't help your pain. You were giving, you were having more side effects of the morphine than benefits. <laughs> yeah, some people are like that, but some people, you know, the the morphine is just so wonderful. That's what they carry in the in the war camps, because when the soldiers are in an excruciating pain, they give morphine, and and that is, you know, make them sleep better, alleviates their pain because they're having acute pain. So acute pain, post-operative pain, cancer pain, 
opioids are amazing. They really help. Neuropathic pain also, they help, especially if the neuropathic pain just happened, like they just had a nerve injury. Now, for nociplastic pain, which is that uh, um, abnormality of the pain system, that dysfunction of the alarm system, that the, the alarm system is dysfunctional, is malfunctioning, if you give opioids, you can actually make that worse. You can aggravate the disease of the pain system because you will be putting a substance there that is already dysregulated in the in the pain system of that person they will not only be more prone to be addicted to that medication but that can perpetuate their pain they they have a feeling that it's working for their pain this is what's interesting you talk to someone who is taking opioids for 10 15 20 years and they tell me, please, Dr. Fulan, don't remove this thing from me because this is the only thing that works for my pain. And then I asked them, how do you know? Because you have been 20 years taking this and you are still in pain. How come that it's working for you? Because you still have pain. And they tell me, well, I know because if I skip a dose, if I miss a dose, if I try to stop for one day, I feel horrible. So I know I need this medication. And I tell them that's not true because it means that you're just treating the withdrawals. What happens when you skip a dose, when you miss a dose, you go on terrible withdrawals. It doesn't mean that your original pain is back or it still exists. It means that you're having a lot of withdrawals and you take the next tablet and you feel better just because you eliminate the withdrawals. So it's really hard that when we, we try to reduce the opioids that some people are taking for a lot of years. The other thing is, if someone is taking the opioids for so many years and you try to reduce, what happens is that their own body will have to start producing their endogenous opioids because we have a pharmacy inside of our brain. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this, but we have a pharmacy wow. that produces opioids. They are called endorphins, encephalines, dynorphins. In these people who have been taking opioids for so many years, their pharmacy was on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> And now telling those workers, come back after 20 years that you were on vacation, come back and start working again. It's really hard. I can imagine that's uh, or if it's taking the place of uh, what you're doing normally that uh, and then just to get used to it. Uh, I, I, I just I, I just I cannot imagine. I just it would be so bad. I'm, I'm glad I was on the other end of the spectrum where yeah. <laughs> it causes yeah. more pain. It's like, uh, no, no, no. Uh, Cause that would be rough to be able to, I, I can only imagine to feel the, what you're calling withdrawal or the, yeah. of, of that and trying to address that. I mean, so one of the things I've heard you talk about is that there, there is a best defense to help deal with chronic pain. And you want to go there for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. So, or, we, our body is amazing and our body has defenses and our body has mechanisms to fight unpleasant things, including pain, including depression, including chronic fatigue syndrome, including post-viral fatigue. We are now seeing a lot of people with post-COVID fatigue and pain. Our body is amazing at healing, but it requires resilience. It requires that your body will have the resources to fight. And I understand some people have been 
uh, traumatized psychologically and physically and socially. And that makes it hard for them to fight in these situations. Not because they don't want to fight. You know, some people say, Dr. Furlan, I'm very resilient. I'm strong. I, you know, I have a high pain, pain you know, tolerance, but they are still in pain. They are still suffering. This means that their brain is probably tired. I'll give you examples. We know that um, people who had uh, a very difficult childhood, not a, it doesn't need to be very difficult, but they had some psychological traumas during childhood. That makes their brain more less resilient to pain in future life, to sadness. And um, we call this adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, A-C-E-S. And those are things like uh, during childhood, they were neglected, you know, neglected physically, emotionally, or they were abused, abused verbally, physically, or sexually. Or there was one of the parents or one of the adults that they grew with had a mental health problem, addiction problem, or was uh, incarcerated or divorced in the parents. All of those things predispose. The more you have of those factors, the more ACEs you have in your life predisposes your brain to be less resilient in future adult life. So when they have to fight pain, when they have to fight sadness, they have less resources, unfortunately. And uh, so they would, with a little bit of acute pain, they may develop chronic pain. With a little bit of sadness, they may develop depression. With a little bit of uh, lack of motivation, they may develop addictions. And so it predisposes, ACEs predispose adults to become more depressed, use more substances to deal with problems in life. Everybody has problems in life and people choose different approaches. So pain is not different. Pain is a stressor. When you have an acute pain in your adult life, that's a stressor. That will activate all of your emotions. Your danger signals will go boom, boom, boom. What's going on? I have to eliminate this pain. Something's wrong with my body. I want another MRI. I want another blood test. I want another doctor because this doctor doesn't know what I have. So they, they create this ongoing stress in their brain. Now, if they don't stop and take care of themselves, and that's what I talk about uh, in my book a lot, because you have to stop and you have to focus on healing. Okay. Your body is healing your injury, whatever caused that acute pain is healing, you need to. So the steps, the five M's that I talk in my book or the steps that I talk, they're nothing more. There's no secret. They're just good sense. <laughs> Sleeping well. A lot of people forget that sleep is extremely important. Talk about their emotions. Talk, you know, recognize that your emotions are playing a big factor on this perpetuation of pain. If you don't have, uh, if you can't afford a psychologist or some counseling, start writing, get a journal and start giving advice to yourself. That's what I talk in my chapter. The step two is talk about your emotions. Get a journal, write down your emotions, everything you're feeling, and then get another page and give advice to that person that wrote the first page you will find a lot of uh, things that you are not doing. So emotions play a big, important step. And one of the emotions that we, we know affect 
pain is catastrophization. <laughs> I know it's a long word, yes. but people who have a tendency to catastrophize, catastrophize just means they have a, a small problem, but they make that a catastrophe. They tend to see the worst in every situation. We know a lot of psychologists around the world, they have done research because they can measure how much catastrophizing personality they have. And they see those people who have a tendency to catastrophize. Guess what? They have, they complain more of pain. They have more chronic pain. The scores that they give are higher. They're more disabled by pain. And catastrophization is something that you can treat, you can reduce. That's what is amazing about the field of pain is that you can actually change someone's catastrophization by talking therapy, talking to them. The other thing, so sleep is extremely important. What they eat, you know, if they're eating junk food, processed food, they don't have the nutrients to fight pain. You need to, you need to, your brain needs to put like the inner pharmacy that I mentioned to you, the pharmacy in the brain needs nutrients. If you don't give the substrate to your pharmacy to make the medicine, imagine that you open a pharmacy in the corner <laughs> and you tell them, I want you to produce antidepressants, painkillers, and uh, medications for anxiety, but I'm not going to give you any chemicals. You have to produce this from the junkyard. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> what kind of what kind of medicines they're going to produce? Junk. So this is what my patients are doing. They are feeding their body with junk, junk, junk food, processed food. I tell them you're not giving your brain the nutrients to produce endorphins serotonin, dopamine, and endocannabinoids. How can you produce those medicines? So diet is extremely important. And then I talk about exercise, of course. Movement is medicine. I tell my patient, motion for your joints is lotion. Motion is lotion. Keep moving because not only is good for your joints, but movement also activates the production of endorphins. Another thing that we also talk is the modalities, like the other, so the five M's are movement, mind therapy, like taking care of your emotions, modalities, which include heat, cold, electrical therapy. The fourth one is manual therapies, like massage, manual therapy, self-massage. I'm not talking about paying expensive massage. There are a lot of things that you can do self-massage. I have many videos on my channel that I, show, I demonstrate how to do self-massage with a foam roller that costs 15 bucks. And then you have a massage therapist at home. And the fifth M is medications. I'm not against medications, but you need to know how to use them wisely. Thanks so much for sharing those. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, um, you know, we have so much available, which is what you bring bring out that it's not, uh, you know, that we do have ways that we can go about uh, dressing and helping us feel better um, that don't necessarily involve um, over medicating or something like this. And, you know, one of the things that you also talk about is that, um, you know, you, you talk about giving, you, you give people advice about, uh, you know, getting their lifestyle back in, uh, in, you know, it was out of whack. Now let's get it back on track and simply, or not simply, but uh, by changing their mindset. Can you talk to that idea of mindset? Yes. Yeah, so, that is so important. I wish I could have another one hour just talking about <laughs> that because um, <clears throat> I'll try to simplify here and do it briefly. I would say 
all the, I have 30 years of experience helping people with chronic pain and I do a lot of science. I publish many, more than a hundred papers on chronic pain and all of my patients who have conquered their chronic pain, which are many, <laughs> many people conquered their, you know, hard times and uh, they're able to live, either live with chronic pain or they're not feeling pain anymore. And once in a while they have a flare up, but they know what to do are the ones that change their mindset. I, 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 I can't remember one single patient that conquered chronic pain, that this was not a major factor. And that includes education about what I just explained to you, the three types of pain, what kind of pain you have, is this more neuropathic, nociceptive, nociplastic, what can I do for myself? What can I expect from the healthcare system? Because a lot of people, the mindset is, I am expecting the doctors, the therapists to do this for me. They will have to come up with a solution. I want another surgery. I want another pill. I want another lab test. I want another MRI. Those people keep searching, searching, searching for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And they will never find an answer because the answer is inside of them. So I would say get education, learn more about pain, learn about the pain science, talk to your doctors in a different way. How can you be partner with your doctors instead of expecting them to do everything for you? See them as your coach, but you are the one who have to climb your mountain. They cannot climb for you. You are the one who have to do the exercises, physical exercises, mental exercises. If your doctor is suggesting you to lower the dose of the opioids, it's not because they hate you and they want to get rid of you. It's because they think that your pain doesn't respond to opioids and it's probably causing more damage to your body than benefit. Even though you think it's causing benefit because every time you skip a dose, you feel horrible, but that could be withdrawals. So, be open to receive the new information with an open mind. Don't be so uh, stuck on your old thoughts that you had for 20 years, because what we knew 20 years ago, we know differently today. That's my, my message. And I, I also like to leave a message of hope. I've seen many patients, 10, 20, 30 years of chronic pain, that they did a little bit of changes in their mind. Sometimes, sometimes it's a change in their sleep. Sometimes it's changing their diet. Sometimes it's losing weight. Sometimes it's engaging in more physical activity. Sometimes it's doing things more enjoyable, more hobbies or distracting your mind. Sometimes it's, you have to go to counseling and you need to talk to a psychotherapist. And there's always hope. I've seen people, you know, transforming their lives with some of those changes. That's so awesome. You know, it's, uh, I've referred to it a couple of times, but you know, I had this, that surgery that, it, uh, um, like I said, it's, I just had my one interview, one year anniversary and meeting with the, the second surgeon, cause there's two surgeons involved. Um, I meet with him today. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, I recognized when I was in the hospital, cause I was in there, um, six days, somewhere in that range. And, and uh, the therapists were wanting to keep me there longer because to work with me and walking and, 
and uh, dealing with uh, some of the new issues that I had um, in recovery. And uh, it, I, <laughs> I told both surgeons, I said, just get me out of here. <laughs> I need, I need to be outside. I've got family that can work with me and stuff, but, uh, and I had to pass a little test where, <laughs> where I could show <laughs> that I could walk with somebody behind me, you know, going down the hallway using a walker. And, uh, but it was, you know, it was one of those things that I'm just, when, once they got me out of there, then the, the mindset just by being in my comfortable surroundings was something that just, uh, kicked in and helped because it was very frustrating. And I can only imagine for people who feel. You, you, you mentioned, same. Steve, you mentioned a thing that uh, is crucial. And it's one of the steps in my book is the family. You mentioned family. One of the steps in my book is about the social aspect of pain. We know from many research that if a person has supports, if they feel supported, if they don't feel lonely, you may be surrounded by a lot of people, but it still feel lonely. We know that people who feel lonely, abandoned, neglected, they suffer more from pain. So I talk about this in the book because even people have families, but their family don't understand what they are suffering because they always feel them, you know, you're always complaining about your pain, but look at you, you look normal. Why can't you clean the house? Why can't you put the garbage out? So I talk in my book about how you communicate your pain to your family, to your friends, to your doctor, to your coworkers, to your manager because they feel abandoned, they feel lonely, and nobody understands because, again, it's an invisible disability. And it's so powerful. I can speak to, the, I can speak to that so much so because uh, you, you're feeling miserable and, and things aren't working out right in the world. In my case, the world is just flipping on end and stuff, and, uh, you know, and it, uh, it was powerful being around people who, you know, they know you, they know about you, and they, you know, they try and figure out how to, help you forget about it or move on and or get through what needs to be done. So, so, so important. Uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned just a second ago, and I got to make sure that we, we say this as we're getting ready to finish up is that uh, you talk about learning to, to talk with medical professionals and you've touched on it a couple of times. I just wondered if you, as we're br draw, drawing to an end, if we could talk a little bit about how important that is to make sure that mm -hmm. uh, you, you learn how to say what's going on. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I spent about an hour, an hour and a half with each patient, new patient. And I, but I know a lot of doctors don't have that luxury. They only have maybe 20, 30 minutes. And those patients, they come with a baggage of 10, 20 years of pain. And they want to tell everything that happened in those 20 years in 20 minutes. So you need to help the doctor in that time. You need to give the right information, the precise information that will help your doctor to help you. <laughs> because you probably have an agenda. You want to tell everything, but your doctor is there thinking what kind of pain this person has, what would be the best treatment. So I, in my book, I talk about uh, uh, some tips, how you communicate your pain to your doctor. But in summary, what your doctor is looking for is tell me about what is the site of pain, the, 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 you know, tell me where it hurts. And ideally, if you can have a body diagram, like just print from the internet, like a body diagram and paint, you know, mark in the body diagram front and back, uh, where is your pain? So they say, doctor, this is, these are the sites that my pain, I have pain. 
And, uh, and then you can, the other thing that the doctor will look at is the onset. When did this start? I use the Socrates uh, letters, S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S. But uh, basically it's the site where it hurts, the onset, when did it start? How did it start? Give me the characteristics of your pain. So is it burning? Is it aching? Is it inflamed? It's hot. Because those words are very important for me to differentiate. So when you're telling me those letters, those words, I am thinking this is nociceptive, this is neuropathic, this is nociplastic, or this is a mix. So in my head, I'm trying to classify what kind of pain you have. Tell me what makes this pain better or worse. Because if your pain gets better with ice, I know it's more nociceptive. If your pain gets better when you are more relaxed and you are in on vacation, I know this is more nociplastic. So tell me what makes it better, what makes it worse. It tells me if it radiates. So your pain starts in the head, but radiates to your shoulder and arm. That might be neuropathic, maybe a nerve root. Tell me also um, the time of this pain. So is it worse in the middle of the night, in the morning, in the evening? And, and tell me again about, uh, give me a score. Are we talking here about uh, how much do you feel pain? Is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? Because that gives me a sense of how much you're suffering from this pain. You may have a very severe condition, but tell but you were telling me this pain is a two or three out of 10. So that tells me, okay, you have a very severe condition, but you're coping well because your brain is not suffering that much. So those are the, the tips that I tell my patients to explain pain to your doctor. Awesome. And I greatly appreciate that, uh, talking about it and uh, giving us some thoughts and advice. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but uh, Dr. Furlan, bef before I go, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you yeah, or learn more, where would you send them? So they can find me on YouTube. I have a channel. It's Dr. Andrea Furlan. I also have a website. It's Dr. Andrea Furlan. Just spell out D-O-C-T-O-R, andreafurlan.com. And there in my website, I summarize everything. There's a link where they can buy my book. There's a link to my channel. And I have a lot of resources, handouts that people can download from my, my website. Awesome. And I will have links to those in my show notes and, uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's a website or got to go to that awesome YouTube channel. I spent some time there, uh, checking out the different th stuff and the uh, thoughts that you had and, uh, good stuff. So, um, Dr. Furland, thanks so much for talking with me today. Eight Steps to Conquer Chronic Pain, A Doctor's Guide to Lifelong Relief is an excellent look at pain and what it is and looking at alternatives, um, to surgery and medicines to help. Uh, what a timely book. What a much needed book. Wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you very much, Steve. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. 
Thanks so much. You're awesome.